Welcome to The Entrepreneur, conversations with entrepreneurs who view their past failures as learning experiences rather than setbacks. Today's guest on The Entrepreneur, Dave Erasmus, the founder of online charity platform Givy and a leading advocate of marrying innovation, technology, and social responsibility. I don't find it exciting having lots of money. Imagine I only had 10,000 users and sold it for 20 million. If anything, I feel like a bit of a crook. I want to create more value than I capture. If I capture some along the way, that would be handy. But the goal is individual and societal transformation, really. Now here's the host of The Entrepreneur, Ashley Breed. I kind of think about entrepreneurial failure. There's resiliency. There's, like I said, your identity is wrapped up with it. It's sort of a life-changing event. And the life you thought you were going to have sort of no longer exists as you saw it. And how do you really process that and get through it? For some people, this is core identity stuff. It's their baby. Actually, it can be like grief, especially when people give up. And so I think allowing that to be on the table as an option is a really good and helpful thing for people. So I like that. I was just thinking as you were speaking, maybe I could begin before telling about my story by reading a blog, kind of a a, a three minute speech that I gave in Londonderry in Northern Ireland about five years ago. I was invited to go and speak at Derry Londonderry. It's a town with a lot of conflict between Protestant and Catholics over time. The last three minutes of my speech that I slapped up into a blog and I wondered if I could read that because that talks about what it means to to fail. Absolutely. Let's fail together trying to create genuine value rather than succeed in creating or capturing value which is not ours for the taking. We must try not merely to work harder or smarter but more painfully at greater personal cost For in that price is where we find ourselves, our futures, and find systems and institutions worth building. Business is not a method. Sorry, business is a method, not a sector. It is a way of thinking that we need in every sector. When we limit business people to the private markets, we screw ourselves, we screw our charities, our governments, and our schools. We need creativity, clarity, and compassion to underpin servant leadership everywhere. I always rejected the idea that I was a businessman because it suggested to me the end goal was making money. I can now see that business is simply a method of moving and organizing value that is useful but doesn't define me. Technology is a tool to serve, but not a godsend. It only amplifies the voice that we give give it. We must not let these ideas of technology or business define and limit us but let's define ourselves by our ability to endure failure embarrassment to push for childlike dreams beautiful moments and to use the right tools for the job when we need them to live a compassionate life supported by our minds and skills and enforced by our anger we should not settle for anything else from ourselves or our leaders and as we go back out into the city i propose to you a few simple thoughts Live simply and be careful what voices you listen to. Design a life that allows you to get outside of yourself. Acknowledge that your environment dictates so much of your thinking. So climb a tree, lick a shoe, run up the escalator the wrong way, spin round on the kitchen floor, grab a cheap flight with no plan, sit the other way around on the toilet, listen to some reggae, talk to a kid about how the world works, ask a granny what is still on her bucket list. 
but please do not try to do the things that you can do. Your avoidance of embarrassment does not serve your city. Neither does allowing your thinking to be defined by it. But if you can learn how to dare to try and try and try again and try and try and try again, this, I believe, is where the real hope lies for the future of this city. So, yeah, just was probably my best attempt at trying to articulate our philosophy of failure and what what is the underpinning idea that leads you to thinking whether something is a success or a failure. And for me, it's about not about the end result, as you said, as you were talking about in your own journey. It's about that process. And can you live with what you've made? And have you pushed yourself as far as you can? And I think the more that we can bake that more intrinsic sense of whether people have tried hard enough into people, the more likely we are to see a braver culture of experimentation and innovation and stuff like that. So thanks for letting me Oh, I love that. And it felt like a lot of what I heard was remove any of the conventions and the conventional way of thinking and the boxes and the labels, business, technology, whatever it might be, removing some of that to allow your most free and innovative self to shine through. Is that kind of the way you, you read that as well? Well, just in the sense of seeing the concepts of business and technology as just tools in your tool belt, they are methods of disseminating ideas in society in a sustainable and growing fashion not the point themselves the point it themselves the point at the heart of it is releasing something authentic and valuable that's of the heart that that builds better humans and better conditions for humans to flourish and if you can use some cool tech and some cool business methods in there to make that work better awesome but you know, don't define yourself based on those tools, define yourself based on whether you are spending your life force around ideas that are worth nurturing and, and uh, then use the tools as best you can. That makes sense. I love it. You mentioned you don't define yourself as a businessman. Is any of that part a defensive mechanism? If you're not invested as a businessman, does it make the failure less profound if you said, well, I didn't set out to be a businessman? Or is it that not defining yourself with a conventional label allows you to, again, sort of tear down any walls that you're seeing? I think that there's two things. Well, I think it's a, it's a good question about whether it's a defense mechanism. I think it's more about I don't want you to think that that's my objective in a conversation, in, in our interaction. And, I, and ultimately, I don't think it is a fair reflection of how I spend my time and what objectives I have in the conversations with whom I'm spending time. I, I just don't think it reflects who I am anymore and what I'm spending my time doing. I think that there was a time when I was a business person I still struggled because of the way I grew up. I always believed that business was more than just about profit and that actually too much profit was a bit grotesque. That probably means that you're not paying other people in the value chain as well as you could. So, so I've always struggled with the reductive nature of business and that profit is the only, you know, well, it's actually the legal responsibility of, of the directors to return value to the shareholders. I just always thought that was a crazy construct when you've got, the rest of all the other stakeholders involved, including the environment and, and everything going along with it. But yeah, I, 
but these days as well, I mean, I spend so little of my time actually doing business that it would be crazy for me to call myself a business person, but that is the method I'm familiar with. And so when I talk with others, I'm often helping them to develop their business methods. And even when I'm thinking about societal innovation and how we improve our uh, essentially our governance structure. I guess I'm still applying the methods of business. So it's just not for the sake of capturing private value in the form of profits and, and shareholder value anymore. When you talk about kind of the evolution of yourself and where you're spending your time today, how did you get sort of from point A as a businessman to someone who doesn't really define themselves that way, but maybe uses it, use business as a construct for frame, framing up their next venture? When we met, I was doing Givy, which was this social giving platform, trying to, essentially, I was still within the construct of business, but trying to take it as far as I could to support the best of our human attributes. So I was thinking, well, I was doing a lot of TED Talks and stuff like that around it at the time, asking you, why do we give? Why in this modern economic world do we still find value in giving? And what is it about it that, that we still need and still utilize in our modern lives? And realizing that there's this very, very powerful thing that happens both in our neurochemistry and in our communities when we give, which is to say, um, not looking for a direct return from whatever resource we've allocated to somebody else. And, but yet often it does come back by, through the proxy of community over time. And it's that kind of reciprocal support that we end up getting when you give. How do we turn that using modern technology of social media? How do we turn that into an everyday activity to build that habit of giving in the modern Twitter, Facebook, Instagram generation? But before I did Givey, I, when I was 19 to 21, I ran an online marketing business. So that was what I cut my teeth on was ads on Google and just running that ads for like 100, 150 companies in the UK predominantly and was lucky enough to sell that after, you know, having all my friends working with me. And I didn't make millions. I, I made enough to pay off my mortgage and build a log cabin in the garden and lived in that for 10 years after that. And so what it meant was I didn't have any money, but I didn't have much need for any money either. So I was earning 500 or a thousand pounds a month doing bits and bobs here and there just to pay my phone bill and car bill. But really, I didn't have much requirement for cash above and beyond that as a 21 year old or whatever. So I had a weird 20s. I'm 30, coming up 35 now, but for 10 years through my 20s, I basically had very little requirement for money because I was living in quite a privileged environment, but I'd also done what I needed to do with money. and didn't have any use for trying to accrue much more of it, which led, that's what gave rise to Givy, which is where I met you. And then after a five years of working on Givy and trying to get it to scale, and I was in California when I was trying to, yeah, after being in Old Street in London, I then went uh, to California to try and sell it to Salesforce. And my investors in the UK kind of ran out of patience with that basically and then gave me an ultimatum to either follow their plan which was never the plan or to or to step down so I ended up stepping down and thankfully put it into the care of the chairman at the time Neil who is now taking it on and now is the he's bought it out actually he's now the sole owner and it's gone on and doing really well I it's not 
huge, but I think last month they did a hundred thousand pounds of transactions for really small grassroots charities, all responding to the Corona or not all, but probably most responding to the kind of Corona crisis. So it's, it's really, it's doing some good work, even though it hasn't achieved the original mission and vision, I guess, of what we were trying to set out to do, change the way the world thinks about giving and make it a small part of our daily lives. But to your point about failure, I think that's, you know, a good point just to pause for a second before going on to the next chapter, which is like, after giving the best of my 20s and the best of my sort of positioning, I guess, as a semi-successful entrepreneur to this project, I have had a a mixed variety of feelings about how to conceive of what happens. You know what I mean? Given an ultimatum. I mean, that's what's so fascinating. How did you respond when you sort of got that ultimatum? Were you still wanting to kind of see it through? Were you done? Were you, how did you kind of process that? Yes, I had come to the conclusion. Well, I actually came to a, yeah, something switched in my mindset when I realized that because I am, the recipient of so much privilege, I can kind of keep any project alive. I can kind of resuscitate and just about put air into any kind of project, it seems, for an almost, like if it's got good values, which is the only kind of thing that I would work on, for what seems like an unlimited period of time. So something just limping along and staying alive isn't proof that the idea is working. It's just proof of my privilege. That's what I've kind of come to the conclusion of. So where to begin with, I was thinking, if I can just keep it alive, if I can just keep it alive, then then that's proof that it's kind of on the way to working. But then I realized it's the other way around. So I had decided to give myself a year to get it from survival into kind of like a thriving position. The only way I could see to do that, because my investors were beginning to get very pinchy about getting their returns because they were, they took a portfolio approach. The other 19 businesses had all closed. They were looking for their 20 to 40x return on my business to cover all of their other losses. And so we were three to four years into this now. And they're beginning to say, what are you doing in San Francisco? We want certainty. We want the returns. And I'm saying, it's not ready yet. It's like you can't pull the cake out of the oven before it's baked. And you might want to, we might have planned that you would be able to take it out after half an hour. But if it's not ready, you've got to leave it in for an extra 15 minutes. And they were saying, no, you have to do that. You have to come back. And Salesforce was a route for me to take this to market. So we realized that the instant matching scheme we had where employers could match their employees donations, and that was how we were going to make money or how we were making money, to scale that, the US market was the best place for it. And Salesforce, because it runs the back end of so many big, small and large businesses and charities, getting an app in their marketplace was the best way to get to scale most quickly so that there was no hassle of adoption. And I was in with, had two of my sort of mentors in this transaction were the COO of desk.com and the MD of Heroku, both of which had sold to Salesforce already. I had the CTO of the foundation as my sponsor, the Salesforce foundation sponsor in. And so we were in perfect position, but the investors, it was out of their frame of reference and, and didn't want to support it. So in the end, I guess, because I was committed that we needed to move forward, we needed something to get us 
on the upward trajectory. When they were blocking that, I was happy to say, well, not happy, but willing to say, fine, well, you need, you, I, it, it's the option of me leaving then because I'm not going to just limp, because I know I could probably limp it on for another three or four years, but to what end? It, it's not proof that the idea is working and it needs to have its chance uh, to have its day in the sun. So, yeah, so that kind of was the time that, that I passed it on. But I've gone through many chapters of feelings about it since, from feeling like, sure, that's fine, that happens, through to feeling like I sh- at times you feel like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have let it go, and maybe I should have fought a bit harder. That now feeling quite a sense of relief in that Neil, who took it on, has stabilised it and has turned it into this really valuable organisation, even though it's not quite the original vision. So I, I would say that my feeling of comfort as to what happens after the failure, if you will, does depend on who picks up the baton afterwards. And, and I've been very thankful that both the first company that I sold and the second company that I kind of transitioned both of which have been awesome MDs who the first company grew from 20 staff to like 150 at one point. I think it might be back down to like 50, 60 now with everything going on. But they've both taken my little messy, cool, creative organizations and and helped establish them. If both of those were dead now, I think I would, as a founder, feel more like like, like I didn't build anything of substance because there was nothing left to show of them, if you know what I mean. If you're an architect and you build houses and 30 years later, there's no houses to show anyone, then you're probably thinking, hmm, not sure how good my designs were. Well, and I like what you said about once in a while later on, I would look back on some of the, the differences and think, what if? Tough question. And I, I think I know the answer that you'll have. But do you look back on it of what if for what could have been for you or what it could have been for others that would benefit from this giving platform? I, I think, to be honest, I think there is alignment there. So I think my ego is attached to how much use it had for others. So not, I'm not trying to make myself sound, I'm saying it's the opposite to sacrificial. I'm saying actually there's just a positive correlation the more people used it and were like, oh my gosh, this has transformed my, I mean, what deeper thing could, like what deeper thing, like the opposite of the social dilemma right now, that Netflix film that's out. And imagine people were running around saying the opposite, like, oh my gosh, I started using this Givy app and I started making donations and supporting causes and, and, and sharing videos and making donations on almost the daily. And I just feel like such a different person now. That would be rad and my ego would be probably overly massaged by that being the case. So I don't think they pull in different directions. I think they go the same way. I, it's, it wouldn't be that I managed to sell it for millions that would make me feel good. And like I said, just money hasn't been, it's just been a tool to use to get good shit done now and again. It's not really where I don't find it exciting having lots of money. If, if anything, Imagine like I only had 10,000 users and sold it for 20 million. I would feel like, if anything, I'd feel like a bit of a crook that I had managed to capture. I mean, this is what I said in the blog, like don't try and don't set out to capture more value than you create. For me, that's the journey of disintegrity. So I want to create more value than I capture. If I capture some along the way, that would be handy. But that's not the plan. That's not the goal. The goal is 
individual and societal transformation, really. And it's not always the track that entrepreneurs take. There is such a focus on profits. There is such a focus on users and the quick sell and the fundraising and gaining traction and and the ego side of it. It's refreshing to hear from you. You're doing well and doing good is correlated. I guess that's what I'm talking about. That like, what's the aspiration above covering your costs? And yeah, I, I optimize for other things. But I will uh, share one quick story, which I guess bridges into what I'm up to now, if that's helpful. Because this guy really sort of changed my view on how to value work as well. I spent two days, one in New York and one in LA with a guy called Brian Johnson. He sold his company called Braintree to PayPal for 800 million in cash. And he took like 700 of that because he had some late stage VCs. But other than that, it was pretty much sole founder created. And so we spent a couple of days together and he was the first. So I've met a lot of spiritual people like monks and, and Catholic, people in the Catholic seminary and others in Bali through the tantric traditions and stuff that are what I would say thinking about the whole or thinking about the long term future. So not thinking about short-term gain, whether that's one year, three year, 10 year, and thinking about it privately. But I'd never met a business person, so without operational skills, that was thinking about the whole and thinking about the long-term future of humanity. But I guess when you make 700 million in cash, you're kind of like out the other side of the game. Obviously, you could be so addicted to the game that even though you're there, you carry on playing in short-term returns because of an addiction and a pathology. But he seemed to have managed to evolve past that. And he was genuinely just waking up, spending his money on how to think about the long run future. So then I was presented with a quandary, which is, what do I do with this knowledge now? Because I really enjoyed my time with him and really enjoyed what I was learning and that kind of mindset it put me in. So I thought either I try and do what he did and go and make a billion dollars, basically, and then act like this. Or forget it and go back to business as usual back in my lane if you will as a sort of social entrepreneur do the next startup kind of thing that has some good values in it and try and build it up again or just pretend just imagine to myself no just imagine you have made a million dollars a billion dollars right now and what would you do what would you wake up and do now if you had done that? Because it's a mindset thing more than anything else. If I can afford to just pay the bills, if I can afford to just stay alive, why not just begin to act like I am? And, and what does a billionaire do? Well, they spend a lot of time learning, a lot of time talking to interesting people. And I'm lucky enough through my YouTube and other stuff that I get a good chance to meet interesting people and talk with them like yourself. But also you walk in nature a lot. And so I realized, actually, that's what I want to spend as much of my time doing as I can. Pretend I am a billionaire and I'm out the other side of the game and just start creating work and art and uh, do that with friends that want to go on that journey and see a, a good future for humanity. So that led me to what I'm doing now, which is I then went and spent a year living in a woodland just off grid in a hut. And, and, and people started to come to visit. I started making weekly YouTube videos and 
the community started to grow. And then in the second year, we started building cabins and learning how to grow vegetables and all that basic stuff. And just getting, seeing the bluebells and watching the seasons change. And I made a film about it, which we can link people to afterwards if they want to see it. The Four Seasons in a British woodland. It's beautiful. One of the, probably the best woodlands in the world, I'd say, for showing the Four Seasons and how much variety and change there is in a year. And then that grew into this creative community and people started inviting us into places around the world and especially in Europe into chateaus and castles and crazy places that I've never been invited to before because it's a different community. It's a different kind of economy or ecology of services and landowners and creatives. And it's been an incredibly inspiring journey and to come full circle that has now just only recently given rise to something. So three years later of doing that and spending time doing that, just paying the bills a couple of days a month and then, or about probably about a week a month I spend working for the market, if you will, to pay my bills. And three, three weeks a month I've been working on just this kind of mindset of what do you do if you want to think about the future of humanity? But just recently we've launched a new cryptocurrency that is a product of this just natural grassroots creative surge. Um, it's called CorcoCoin, and you can find it on CorcoCoin.org. So C-O-R-C-O and then coin.org. And basically, it's, as far as I'm aware, the world's first tree-backed economy. So like how money used to be backed by gold. Yes. You have, you know, gold bars in a safe. And then instead of carrying that round on your back, we would carry little notes that represent receipts for the gold bars. And I could give you a receipt and then you could go and get your gold bar. And then over time, we've got rid of that and there's nothing behind it. It's just like we don't even have the notes anymore, do we? We're just sleeping <laughs> our phones and hoping that it works. I think we need to reroute our economy. I think we need to, we, our, our economy and our economic thinking has diverged so badly from ecology and what our actual home needs it's pulling in the opposite direction and we can't sustain that and that's where the environmental crisis is coming from so i'm trying with our friends in this creative community to reroute our economy to get it to line up and and become sort of have more integration our economics and our ecologics to be together so yeah we, we have this tree backed kind of almost micro economy where We've planted a thousand trees in Scotland and each of those exact locations has been stored on the blockchain. And so you would be like the owner of tree number four. And if I provide a service for you, you can send me that tree. The real value to the world is that now that we're in this ecological crisis, each of those trees is like a carbon capturing factory. Over time, as it grows, it's capturing more and more carbon. And so almost like if you have your own solar panel kit at home, you've bought that solar panel and it's capturing the sun and turning it into electricity. You could at some point sell, use that electricity or sell it to someone else or sell it back to the grid. And one day you could even choose to sell your solar panel or, or, or continue to use your solar panel to generate your own electricity. And so the trees are like that. You are the owner of a tree token, which represents a real tree in the ground somewhere in the world on our, that's locked into our system. And you can, as the carbon gets captured, you can use the carbon kilograms as corco coins, as currency, or you can even use the asset of the tree itself to say, hey, Dave, thanks so much for the podcast today. 
here's a tree for your, for your troubles. And it's like a currency of friendship, basically. Like when you're at the pub and you buy, you say, I'll buy a round of drinks and then you buy a round of drinks. It doesn't matter how much the drinks are worth. It's like a, a sign of friendship in the same way. I wanted to kind of go back to a couple of things. So growing this community off the grid and being invited into these castles and into these amazing places, what, what has that invitation been? So people had watched my YouTube videos and they had seen, the, I guess, the culture we were building around appreciation for nature, like a kind of simple learning environment, quite honest, open, inclusive and creative. If you've got some big ass castle somewhere in the middle of nowhere, you want people to come there. You know what I mean? You might not want to be selling it as an Airbnb, but you want friends, you want to build community. So I think that these guys with these castles and chateaus see it as an opportunity to build their community with people that aren't, let's say, overly commercially motivated, but have other values that they're holding, that they want more of in their lives. So it's this kind of symbiotic thing. The castle owners don't want to be lonely. We want places to be together in and to extend our network and yeah inspiration and network of friends around the world and yeah and then and that it's like a match made in heaven basically it reminds me always of the phrase opposites actually don't attract like attracts Mm. like and it feels Mm. like everything that you've done does seem to have that symbiotic a cyclical reciprocity going through it of great people coming together for a common cause united aligned and the rest of it just kind of figuring a way to work out. It's quite a philosophy. And um, I'm excited for your, I'm sure, book tour coming out soon. <laughs> I think it's interesting what you said about opposites and similars. I think similar values attract similar values. I think different, on top of that values layer, different skills, opposites attract on skills. You know what I mean? So I think that's what we look for is we're looking for alignment in values and we don't want different values. We want similar values, but you want on that next layer up everybody to be really diverse because as long as you've got the values shared, then you've got a way to connect and a way to be safe, frankly, together. And then the diversity is all very exciting and fun because it's like, whoa, you're a poet. You do this, you build things, you like the wackier, the better, really, because it's more and more inspiring. So it's like a combo, I guess I see it as. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what did failure mean to you in your 20s? And maybe what does failure mean to you now? If I was to, to define this new world set of values of which how you think about failure can be seen in that as the values of friendship what quality friendship is so if you turn up to one of these places as a poet or a musician what makes that a successful transaction is very different to like turning up as a ceo in a tech startup and doing good work for a day or two or for a week or something like that it's based more on how you are how are you going to be in this space and do you do what you say you're going to do And does everyone stay safe and get what they expected as well as exciting creativity and stuff that they couldn't, the good stuff that they couldn't have imagined, like that kind of unprecedented explosion of creativity. Whereas in business, it's far more known. You're looking to get towards a specific goal and your objective as a CEO can be seen your level of success can be seen by how closely you were able to get to the goals that you set out to achieve or, or surpass them or whatever. It's a much more of a competitive framework you're in, whereas the, this world in the 30s, this world of friendship and kind of off-gridness has been a lot more about 
you can't really know what you're going to get, but you know what you don't want to get. You don't want to get beaten up when you turn up to a castle. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You don't want, you want, it, it really comes down to your word. It really comes down to, are you able to do what you said you were going to do? And I, I guess I will say that I think there's some lessons to be learned from the off-grid world, let's say, of my 30s, back into the more on-grid world of my 20s, which is, if you look at the highest performers, they're always people who understand the value of giving and the value of relationship and the value of whether you're buying, bringing in VCs or employees or partners, these are all just people trusting you on your journey. And for me, the biggest failure is to not let them into to, to not do what you said you were going to do or to overpromise with those people and to effectively lose your word. The most important thing, regardless of whether the deals do or don't get done, is keeping to your word in a way that means that people continue to want to have relationship with you. Because it can be the second or the third venture capital project that you do that ends up working. But if people don't want to deal with you anymore, then you're screwed. So I think there are some values from this second world that can be taken back into that sort of more clearly defined business world to help people perform more highly, I guess. And with your, with Corco coin, is there sort of learnings or that seems like a good melding of, again, great idea, great value system. It has kind of, uh, social good as well as business good. It's enabling stronger connections through this crypto coin marketplace. How is any, what are you applying from your twenties into that venture? It's, I mean, it's interesting. The approach is totally different in that we've built it all on a volunteer basis and it's community owned. So I don't own it. I've, I've rejected venture capital. I had a guy that had made, 20 20 to 100 grand tickets over the last three years wanting to put money in if i would privately own it and i wouldn't do it because it goes against the values of it's a shared asset that we've built together so i guess my lesson has been well only try to only deal with people that do what they say they're going to do and test it out in small ways first before you do big ways because people can say all sorts of shit but it's what do they actually do What's the relationship between what they say and what they do and test that small so you can scale it up. But with that, I've just really become, it goes back to what I'm saying about the off-gridness, the getting away from the market. I've become a massive believer in the amateur, the art of amateurism, which is to say, the word amateur comes from the amour. So from, for the love. And I'm a big believer now in not just that the valuable things of life and our humanity come from our heart, but actually some of the best work, some of the most efficient work comes from people of heart. So we have achieved, I raised like $2 million of investment for Givy. And I would say as a product, we are almost at the level now with Corco Coin after spending about £5,000 of just giving people a little bit of token gesture thank yous here and there for effort they put in. We're probably at a similar level now to what we spent a million pounds of venture capital on because it's community owned, community run, and because it's run from that fuel of the amour, the amateur love, it's quite pure. And so I guess I've actually learned the power of, of people, really, the power of passion and, and also the, 
asset of giving the ownership away. The venture capital world is all about you holding the tickets and giving out as little as you can to everybody along the way. That's my experience of it anyway. And I'm seeing that actually the opposite can be true. And it, it was only when I said about my privilege is what allows me to carry on keep it resuscitating and keeping a project alive. I guess I've doubled down on that now and I've accepted that part of the privilege is who I am, but it's also the communities I'm a part of. So why not let community own the asset together? And it's actually more resilient. I think it's more likely that Corco Coin will scale because it's community owned. So I try and earn my money now through just doing some, I coach a few entrepreneurs on a monthly or weekly basis over Zoom like three or four people just to pay some bills. And then the rest of my time, I try and give it away to the community because it's uh, a lot more fun and seems to uh, work a lot quicker. How did you grow? So after you spent some time with Brian Johnson, after you were sort of shutting or transitioning out of Giddy, mm. you went off the grid. Well, yeah. how did you get this idea? Well, I went... So after I raised the second round for Gibby, which was extremely difficult, we raised a million bucks. But in the meantime, I mean, going back to failure, I was like, most of my team had to leave. I had my CTO was working in the evenings on his own and I was working during the day. I was only able to do like three hours work a day because I was kind of like depressed or something, I guess. It was just really hard work trying to raise that round. We finally got it in and I was 29 and I decided to go on a soul searching trip to the Corcovado rainforest, which is in Costa Rica. And two friends suggested it because it's the world's most biologically diverse place. So for me, it's like a mecca of life itself. And so I went three weeks off the grid for the first time, no phone, no internet. I took no books with me. I just took a journal. A friend gave me a journal and said, take this, trust me. And that became my rhythm. So every morning I'd wake up, get some brunch, write for a couple of pages, 10 pages, whatever, get in the car, drive three, four hours, stay over, do the same thing and just keep road tripping up and down from Nicaragua to Panama and went and made this pilgrimage basically. And so coming back from that, plus with the knowledge of what I was explaining with Brian Johnson, I was like, I want to continue to explore these values of life and this future thinking of how we organize life. But I want to do it closer to home. I want to be nearer my family. I don't want to settle in California. The one thing I do need to do is when my parents get old and die, I want to make sure that I am around for that process and present. So I don't want to settle somewhere else. So I managed to, through a friend of a friend, I, I was putting the feelers out. I was trying to buy land, basically. I was, me and two friends were trying to buy land relatively near the airports outside London. Really hard but through a friend of a friend connected with an aristocrat. They still exist in the UK, these kind of big Downton Abbey style landowners. And he, he just, we basically struck a deal where he said, you can have, pick a woodland. He's got loads of woodlands, like thousands of acres. He said, pick a spot of woodland, walk around with the woodsman. And I said, look, why don't we do a year deal where we just experiment? You just let me have the space. If I don't like you or you don't like me, we can boot each other out. I can leave or you can boot me out whenever you want but I think we might get on and it might be good for me being here and so we did that and then carried on ever since so I was I actually slept there last night or the night before but I'm not there as much as I was at the moment because I'm been busy trying to get some get my shit together in this world at the moment so 
Well, it sounds like nature has been sort of an inspiring force and a grounding force and kind of the place you go to to reset and figure out what's next. And it's clearly given you some of your best ideas. So I'm very excited to see what you do next. And we're probably going to need a follow-up interview. There's just so much here, Dave. And I'm so happy for you. You are an entrepreneur, the anti-entrepreneur, an entrepreneur in the truest sense. You sort of, again, you defy all of the labels, but it's inspiring to be around you and see that paintbrush so broad that you paint with and how it brings people together and you create models for society. And clearly you're just creating a whole new civilization. So well, we'll see how far we get, but I, I would say that I love this podcast and what you're doing and trying to invite people to think about failure because in my coaching, it is one of the biggest themes that comes up is trying to get people to think differently about failure so that they can get out of their own way so that you can just allow yourself to get on with stuff. And, and, and to be honest, and I, I, I know these days it's, it's difficult referring to uh, the sexes basically because someone's always upset about something but in with some of the women that I coach especially one of the common themes I'm always coming back to is you've got to be kinder to yourself and and it's something that I'm fine particularly with the women and and, and the constant thing I end up saying is if this was your friend would you be saying this it's like no of course not I'd be exactly the opposite I'm like come on you've got yeah. to be kinder to yourself you really have and for me that kindness really relates to a failure-friendly culture. Do you know what I mean? The, the two things kind of go hand in hand. So I, I guess to finish, I would say that kindness is the antidote to improving our relationship with failure so that we can get out of our own way and get on with the building the best lives that we can. Yeah, I just so eloquently put, I have no words. <laughs> oh, well, I, I'm really great to reconnect with you and thanks for having me on today. I, well, we'll be in touch again. Thank you so much for speaking with me, for inspiring everybody. Wow. Talk soon. Uh, thanks. thanks, Ashley. All right. See you soon. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Entrepreneur. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about The Entrepreneur, including booking information, please visit pod617.com slash entrepreneur. The Entrepreneur is a production of pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network.